0: once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. How we help the poor is always a contentious topic, both inside and outside the church. Caring for the poor should be a hallmark of the church, but how? Teaching team member Jeff Norris continues the series, Greater Love, True Religion, with this message entitled, God's Command to Love the Poor, which covers Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll
1: jump into the, to the scriptures that we have for, for today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for Kate's story and her vulnerability and, and honesty to share her story. And thank you that her story reminds us that, Jesus, you are the, you are the chain breaker You're the one who sets your people free from addiction, from sadness and pain, from all kinds of situations where we find ourselves in need. And Jesus, you are the answer. As Kate said in the video, it wasn't the hard work. It was Jesus who rescued us. And so we come to you this morning as our good shepherd, as our rescuer, and we ask that you would lead us Um, into your presence this morning, that you would take your word and that you would cause it not to return void, that you would use me simply as your vessel, that the words out of my mouth would be your words and that you would press them, the scripture and the truth of your scripture, deep into our hearts, and that you'd convict us and encourage us, enlighten us, make us more like you. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that have children, What I'm about to say is no surprise to you, you know this to be true, and that is that children take commands and instructions from their parents as mere suggestions, do they not? It's optional. Eh, maybe. I'll pretend I didn't hear you. I will hear you and kind of halfway obey, or I just won't obey. Now, I want you to think back to when you were a kid. You remember how this was. I, I know for me, I can remember as a kid. You know, my mom would be in the next room and she'd call my name and I would hear it clear as day and with some instruction behind it and I would just act like I didn't hear it. Better to ignore than to obey, right? And, and so we know this to be true of children. But I want to suggest to you that it's also true of us, the children of God. We like to pick and choose the commands of God based on the level at which they inconvenience us. So, if they inconvenience us a lot, if it's a, if it's a large inconvenience level, then we go, I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if I'm mature enough for that yet. I'm, I'm kind of a level one Christian right now. I'll, I'll do that when I get to maybe level eight, nine, or ten. If it's an easy command, if it's something that we can do without much self-sacrifice, if without much self-denial, without much dependence upon the Lord, we go, oh man, I knock that out of the park every day. What we're going to see today is we're going to see that one of the things we'll see is that written all over Scripture is the command from God, the, the expression from the heart of God that to love and care for the poor it's his desire, it's his command, it's his instruction to his people. And, and we're the ones that create the, the Christianity caste system, if you will. Of Well, there's certain, there's certain commandments that I only do because I'm such a young Christian. And then the ones who are more holy than me, they're the ones that do the hard ones. And, and God doesn't make those levels of Christianity for us. He simply says, if you follow me, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this is how my people live. This is who we are. This is what we do because of Christ in us. Let me show you, and I'm just going to read a few. I mean, there's, there's tons, but I'm just going to read a few that just show, a few verses that show the heart of God and his command to love the poor. Psalm 41.1 says, blessed is he who has regard for the poor. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Ezekiel 16, 49, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Amos 2, 6 and 7, for three sins of Israel, even four I will not turn away. My, my uh, turn back my wrath they sell, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals they trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed James 2, 15 and 16 if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that? 1 John 3, 16 through 18, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. From the little booklet I showed you from Amy Sherman, she says this, Over 400 Verses, that's mind blowing, 400 verses sprinkled throughout every genre of scripture from the law to the wisdom literature and the prophets to the gospels and epistles speak about God's passion for the needy and his desire that his followers share that passion. God's command to love and care for the poor is written all over scripture, and the command is not optional. The good news is this, it's, and it's not that that was bad news, but there's great news to know that this is at the very heart. We've established this over the last three weeks. This is at the very heart of God. It's the very expression of the gospel for his people to say, God has loved me. He who was rich became poor. As Caleb led us last week, Jesus came and came into the dust and he, he out of Psalm 113, the language of Psalm 113, and he pulls us out of the dust to seat us not just with princes, but with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the very heart of the gospel, that the merciful love of God would be born within us and then displayed through us in extraordinary ways. And I use that word extraordinary purposefully because as I spoke about in the first week of this series, Anybody can love in an ordinary way. The world who doesn't know anything of Jesus loves ordinarily. And and the ordinary love is to love those who are easy to love, to move towards those who are easy to move towards, to express compassion to those who are really not that needy because it doesn't take a whole lot of effort from us, but to love extraordinary. To love in an extraordinary way, in a way that God loves us, is to love people who are not easy to love. To love people who require long commitments of self sacrifice and self denial so for, the, for their betterment, not our own. To love like Jesus loves is an extraordinary, it's a greater love than what's ordinary to man. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 15. If you have your Bibles, if if not, it'll be on the screens and it's printed in your bulletin as well. But Deuteronomy, the fifth book of what's called the Pentateuch, which, is, which are also called the, the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses is writing to his people, to the people of God, the Israelites, giving them instructions on how they are to live as God's people. Verse 7 is where I'll start. Go through verse 11. I'm going to read this and I'm going to stop along the way. I'll do a little different than I normally do. I'm going to stop along the way giving some commentary and teaching as we go. Verse 7 says this If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. I want to. Draw out a couple of things in, in just in that, that one, that first verse. One thing to note is this. Moses says, if any of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns. So he's giving a broad spectrum here to say, in anywhere within the towns that the Lord is giving you, the land that he's given you, this land of Canaan, if, any, if anyone would become poor. So it's not just your neighbor right next door, although that person is included. But a broad spectrum of look across the land and where, notice where the poor may be. Another thing to, to understand is that these, these people that he's speaking about have become poor more than likely, most likely, because of an insurmountable debt. And I'll explain more in a minute why that is. But they've, they've got a debt that they can't pay off, and they've very likely lost their livelihood. They've lost their land, and they are in great need. But the most important thing to pull out of verse 7 is this. He says at the end there, he says, you shall not harden your heart. You shall not harden your heart. God is wanting us to see, as Moses writes this, that this is a heart issue. This is not just merely a, hey, we should help those who are near to us who are in need or around us who are in need or in our city or in our land. But this is about the heart of God so fueling us and dwelling us that our hearts are warm to him and the things that he loves and the things that he cares about and notice what he says next he says you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand and i want you to get that the hand and the heart are always connected always If the hand is closed outwardly, if the the posture of our service to others is one of a closed hand, one of of a, a hesitant hand, of a resistant hand, of prove yourself to me before I serve you hand, then that is an indication that the heart is hard because they're connected. What happens in the heart dictates what happens in the posture of our hands to those around us. And he's saying don't harden your heart and don't close your hand to your brother. Verse 8. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Significant text here. To lend him, keyword, sufficient for his need. Oftentimes we can, and I'll just say that I will do this. You see, if you relate to this, oftentimes I think of helping someone who's in need is is merely just a handout of some kind. And sometimes that's, that's, that is it. That's all that we're able to do in the moment. And maybe perhaps someone has approached us and said, I, I need some of this, and we give them food, whatever it may be. And it is just a quick interaction. But what this text is saying, what Moses is saying here to the people of God, is he's saying it's so much more than that. To love a person in need is to move towards them in such a way to where you are committed to meeting their need sufficiently. And then listen to the next four words in the text. Whatever it may be. Those are heavy words. The word whatever scares me. Whatever it may be. I'm fine with giving a token handout, but if you're talking about a long, sustained, entering into a difficult situation and scenario that's going to take a lot out of me, Okay, hold on, let's think about this. Sufficient for the need, whatever it may be. This is what the church of God, this is what the people of God do, is we move towards people who are in need, who are in poverty, who are poor, and we say, we want to be to you a resource that is sufficient for your need, whatever that may be. Verse 9, take care, lest there be an unworthy thought, here's that word again, in your heart. Heart. Now, isn't that interesting? He says, "Unworthy thought in your heart, not your mind." Don't aren't thoughts in your mind? What well, Moses is, what God is speaking through Moses, is to say this. He's to say it's more than just an intellectual exercise. To say that, okay, we have these thoughts that are, you know, I, I see. We need to we need to help the poor, and so I'll help the poor. But no, no, no. Every part of our fabric of who we are is engaged in this process because. Our hearts are engaged. In, in ancient times, the heart was the very epicenter of the existence of the person. And we have similar understanding of the heart today as we speak about what does your heart tell you, make sure your heart is in it. But it was even more significant in ancient times, in the ancient near Middle East. And, and it was this understanding that everything about you is encompassed, your, your heart, your soul, your mind, your spirit, everything was in your heart. And he's saying as you think about serving the poor, don't have an unworthy thought in your heart that would sound like this, that the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly, another word for that word is in, the, in the Hebrew is evil, that your eye look with evil on your poor brother and you give him Nothing. So you're going, okay, seventh year of release, what is, what is this talking about? So what would have been set up in the law, in the Mosaic law by, uh, earlier in, in, by Moses and, is that God had told him, let's set up this, this system, if you will, where every seventh year is the year of release. And this is to, to mirror God's resting on the seventh day. And in the seventh year of release, all these crazy, incredible, awesome things would happen where uh, the land would not be tilled all year long. For the purpose that it would bear more fruit and be more fertile in the years to come. But the land would be at rest for a year. Servants would be at rest for a year. You would not have to, the the servants of that day and time would not have to perform their duties for an entire year. But specific to this text as it relates to the poor, those who were in debt were released from their debt in the year of release. Scholars, there's been different debate on, is this just a one-year release from debt, or is this a full-time, forever release from the debt? There's differing opinions on this. I tend to lean more towards that this was a permanent release from their debt. I mean, think about this for a second. Think about if we lived in a country where we had a seventh year of release. That would be crazy, right? It would be just insane, if that was our reality. But just if that were our reality, where, where every seventh year, anyone who was in debt was released from their debt. There was no work on the land. The servants were released or, you know, whatever, whatever job might be in our culture regarded as a servant or whatever that may be. But there was this year of release, okay? And a guy comes to you in the sixth year and he says, I'm in need I'm in need, I I need this, I'm I'm poor. And you say your response to him as you would be tempted, as I would be tempted to say, hey man, next year's your release, just hang in there a little bit longer. Hang tight, brother, it's coming. Your release is coming, Just, just hang tight. This is what he's saying, he's saying, look, don't let evil creep into your heart that you would have this thought that, that would say that the seventh year, the year of release, is near and your eye look with evil on your poor brother and you give him nothing. So Moses is saying even if it's right up to crunch time that the year of release is near, it doesn't give you an excuse not to help. Even if it's December 31st of the sixth year and tomorrow is the year of release, you say, how can I help you? How can I move towards you with the compassion and the mercy and the love of God, this greater love of God, to say, how can I meet your need sufficient, whatever it may be? And listen to what he says next. So that the cry, so, uh, well, let me just go back and read the seven, uh, verse, eight, uh, verse 9. I'll get it right in a second. Beginning with take care. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and say the seventh year, the year of release, is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Now listen to this. And he, cry, cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Things just got real. God is, God is saying that if we don't move towards our brothers and sisters in need, it's sin? exactly what he's saying. Listen to what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, It is a dreadful thing to have the cry of the poor against us. For God has his ear open to that cry and in compassion to them will be sure to reckon with those that deal hardly with them. I kind of wish I had not read that. It's, it's sin. Verse 10. Here's what we do though. You shall give to him freely. This is gospel language. And although Moses didn't know Jesus, he knew there was a Savior coming, but he didn't know in all these years previous to Christ that who Jesus would be in the flesh. We now, through the New Testament lens, can read this text, and I think it's safe for us to, to read it this way, that we would say, you shall give, freely, give to him freely as Christ has freely given to us. We shall give freely, and here it is again, and your heart always comes back to your heart. God is always concerned, first and foremost, are our hearts his? Are we aligned with his heart? Because if our hearts are there, then our hands will be open. He says, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. We don't do it because we think, okay, I'm going to do this so that God will bless me. We're not in it for the reward. But it just simply uh, continues to communicate that God is a God who blesses those who operate in accordance to his heart and his will. Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Please don't use this verse. Verse 11, as some have used over the years, as an excuse not to serve the poor. Because they say, oh, the poor will always be among us, so what's the point? That is a twisted and evil way to interpret that verse. What God's intention is to say here is that the opportunity is always at hand. You don't have to look very far. How will you respond? And then he says, therefore, I command you. Here's the commandment. You shall open wide your hand. Don't just open it. We tend to open our hands like this. We say, okay, God, I'll be open. I'll be generous. And our hands are open kind of like this, this half-hearted obedience. But he says, open wide your hands to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. There's four questions that come from this text and really just this topic that we have to ask. And I feel like this sermon is kind of Act 1 and Act 2. Act 1 is looking at the text and walking through it and seeing where God would orient us in the Scripture this morning. And then Act 2 is saying, okay, let's get more practical. Let's ask some practical questions as we think about this idea of poverty and poor. And let me just say again, I'm about to walk through some stuff here that in in many ways is, I'm going to mention some things that you're going to go, I wish he had said more about that. And so let me just tease you a little bit with next week, Bob is going to go into this command part two. This is part one, and he's going to tease some things out for us a little bit more in the practicalities of living out the command. And then again, the panel discussion will be in much more detail on the practical level of how we can engage in in these things. First question I want to address, though, is this. What is poverty? What is poverty? We can go with kind of just the typical definition in the, in the dictionary. I got this off dictionary.com. It, it states, the state or condition of having little or no money, goods or means of support. And I want you to understand that being poor obviously is related to money, but oftentimes we leave it at that. We leave it at this place of, well, you don't have money, you're poor. And there's truth, obviously, in that. But, but it, in this definition, I actually like that it says It says no money, goods, or means of support. And that means of support is huge. Because the bedrock oftentimes of those who are in poverty is they're in this place where there's no support system. There's no no family unit that's undergirding them. There's no connections or opportunities or relationships that they can fall back on to where when the rug is pulled out, there's nowhere to go. And so poverty oftentimes is perpetuated not just with a lack of money, but a lack of a support system. What would it look like? These are the questions we have to ask. What would it look like for the church to step into that gap and say, we will be your support system. We will come behind you. And let me tell you, we, our community outreach department is incredible, the things that we're doing and the, the ministries that we partner with And so I want us to dig into that, and we will, of what we already are doing at this church and and all the amazing ways that God is using Perimeter as the hands and feet and the voice of Jesus in the communities around us. But my aim this morning is more directed at my heart and your heart to simply say, how are we answering the call individually and in our families? I mentioned a minute ago that part of what was being said there in that text in Deuteronomy was But the poor will always be among us. And and the intention of that verse is to say there's opportunity at hand. And you don't ever have to go very far. Now we live, well I'll just say this, the church sits in Johns Creek. And when I moved here almost three years ago, I I probably heard a hundred different times, oh man, Johns Creek, one of the richest areas in Georgia. And I think that's certainly true. But we are blind oftentimes to what's going on right underneath our noses. Let me show you. Let me show you some definitions of, of what poverty is and then I'll move into what's right around us. Here's some statistics that were sent to me this week by um, a guy on our staff named James Smith who does incredible research for us. And when he sent these to me, I almost fell out of my chair. I was so overwhelmed. He's, this is what he said. He's, the poverty line in the U.S. is defined as a gross annual income at or below $25,100 for a family of four. It's at roughly12,000 dollars gross annual income for a household of one. So obviously, as you understand, as the family unit is bigger or smaller, the, the numbers are different in terms of what defines poverty from an income level. The U.S. government defines struggling as a family of four with a gross annual income between 25 and 50,000. And to qualify for free and reduce lunches in a public school, the gross annual income is at 31,000 or below for a family of four. But let's get a little closer to home. Here in just right next door in Gwinnett County there are approximately 60,000 kids on free and reduced lunches. There are over 3,000 don't let that number just be a a number on the screen. Think about that. 3,000 homeless children that have been identified in Gwinnett County. 80% 80% of kids attending the Norcross School Cluster qualify for free and reduced lunch. 80%. It's just down the road from here. In the North Fulton, Alpharetta, Roswell area, there are over 700 homeless families that have been identified. And over 9,000 children are on free and reduced lunch. I wanted you to see these stats one, because they're startling. Two, because I want you to understand, this is not, these, this reality is not down in the city of Atlanta. This is not Doraville. This is right here within a six-mile radius of this church. The, these are the people that we drive past on our way here. But, but I want to suggest to you, and again, this is me talking. You see if you identify. I think the reason is, is I examined my heart. Why was I so startled by these numbers? I was so startled by these numbers because I didn't know. And to be honest, I, I, I didn't live in such a way that I cared to know. Because out of sight, out of mind, right? I, I know the roads to take to avoid areas of poverty. I know where to drive to where this is not in my face. I know to, how to operate in such a way to where this doesn't seem like reality because if it's not reality then I don't have to worry about it and there's no sense of obligation. If there's no sense of obligation then I can just go about my life oblivious as I am and not worry not be concerned and not follow the command of God Let me show you this graph that kind of brings it all together Within a six-mile radius around Perimeter Church, there are 405,000 people who live in that area, in that radius. There's 40,000, 10% of the population who are below the poverty line. There's another 62,000 who are in the, in the uh, definition of struggling. And when you add those two together, that means 102,000 people right here within a six-mile radius of the church, 25% of the people we live around are in poverty or are struggling on the borderline of poverty. The opportunity is at hand. And if you're like me, you drive past it and oftentimes don't give a second thought. Part of God's plea to us is that's got to change. The Puritans had four categories for, for poverty. First, they said that oftentimes, poverty is a result of calamity. Some type of calamity has come into the person's life, something unexpected that has driven them towards poverty. Maybe a divorce or an unexpected family situation, maybe a natural disaster, something has happened on that front. Secondly, they said also oppression. When you've been a part of Generations of oppression, Uh, don't think of these categories that I'm giving you, these four categories, as nice little that everybody fits into just one of these. Sometimes they bleed together because when you've been in a situation where you've been oppressed for so long, you, you end up experiencing calamity after calamity after calamity, which leads to this deep sense of despair and hopelessness to where from the outside eye viewing in, you would say, and this is the third category that the Puritans came up with, you would say they're slothful. They're lazy. They just won't work. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes you're dealing with someone who is slothful and they're poor because of their slothfulness, but sometimes it looks like slothfulness because their, their hope is gone and there's no support system and they just say, ah, what's the point? The fourth category is by choice. The Puritan says there will be many who know Jesus and because of the for the sake of the kingdom of God have said I want to be poor so that I can be among the poor and live with them I'm going to combine these next two questions in your notes for the sake of time but we have to ask these two questions why is loving and caring for the poor so hard and why is it so important let me suggest to you that it's hard because as we saw in the text in Deuteronomy our hearts are bent towards hardness that's first and foremost. That's just naturally how we function. But the statement I'm about to say, you're going to say, wow, that's obvious. But, but it's hard. Loving and caring for the poor is hard because it's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. I want you to keep this visual in your mind where Caleb led us last week, where Jesus came and he came into the dust and he pulled us out of the dust to rescue us from our own poverty. From our spiritual poverty and even physical poverty, this is what Jesus has done to us. But don't miss this. What a beautiful picture that is, but don't glamorize the picture. Because what Jesus did is he was rich and he became poor. And he entered into the dirt, into the grime, into the messiness to pull us out of the dust. The dust is dirty. And so as we enter into this task of being faithful to the command of God to love and to care for the poor, it's hard work. It's dirty work. It's messy work because we're dealing, we're sinners, dealing with other sinners and just messiness. It's hard work, but it's important work because it's at the heart of who God is. And here's why it's important too. It's important because as we engage with those who are poor, We're showing the dignity that they deserve. Oftentimes, people who have approach people who have not from a status of superiority. As if they learn from us and that's it. And what the gospel says is that we move towards people, regardless of what they have or don't have, from a place of equality as image bearers of God to simply say, you have dignity, you have value, and I can learn from you just as much as you can learn from me. What a posture that would be to move towards others in that way. Lastly, how, do we, how should we appropriately love and care for the poor? Let me give you three things very quickly. There's other ways, but these are the three that I think oftentimes we don't, we don't sense, we don't see, we don't realize. We, we, we typically think it's okay because this is good, this is okay. We often think that engaging with the poor is simply uh, a handout here and there, a quick little help here and there, and that's, that's part of it. But I want to give you three things that are, that are more involved that the church responding to the command of God must be about. The first one is this, that we would be engaging consistently in relief work. That we'd be moving into areas of crisis and providing the relief. That that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus as we are proclaiming his goodness. That our proclamation wouldn't fall flat because our hands and feet aren't doing anything. But that we would move towards people in a way that would bring the relief that they need. But secondly, that we would be committed to the long process, the long relationship of personal development. That we would go towards people and say, what is it that you need? And remember the text in Deuteronomy that we would meet their need sufficiently, whatever it may be. And maybe their need is, I can't get a job because I don't have any type of education. We say, okay, how can I come alongside of you and help you get your GED so that we can then move towards how to go and get this job and have an interview and these kind of things? How can we champion them in that process? But thirdly, and this one's really hard because this is the one that we have a lot of opinions on, but being able to address, to be able to identify and address systems, systems that cause poverty, systemic issues that keep people in poverty. Let me tell you where these three things came to light for me, and I referenced it earlier, was on April 27th, 2011, God sends a tornado through Tuscaloosa where we were living at the time. Tuscaloosa is a very segregated city Not just among race, but among rich and poor. And he sent in his sovereignty, although it was horrible and horrific and people lost their lives, he sent this tornado, this this massive tornado through two areas of the city that are the poorest areas of Tuscaloosa. One is called West End and the other is called Alberta City. And these two places within the city of Tuscaloosa were wrecked. And all of a sudden, you had all these people who were hanging on by the skin of their teeth, the, all these people that were on the borderline of poverty, if not in poverty, who had no place to go, who were suddenly displaced. And it was as if God said, I'm going to stir this up, and I don't mean that to be some horrible, insensitive pun. I just mean, he, I'm going to stir this up in such a way to where, hey, hey rich church, people on the north end of, of the city who don't engage with those on the south end, hey, you've got to deal with this now. Thousands of people have nowhere to live. What are you going to do with this? And All of a sudden, we're pre- presented with a situation where we have to say, what are we going to do with this? My wife and I, we began to be- befriend this single mother and her little baby boy, and she had other kids as well. And We began to have them over to our house a lot, and I'll tell you, it's easy to have an opinion about why people are poor. It's a lot harder to hold some of those opinions when you begin to build a relationship with them. And you begin to hear their story and you begin to say, how can I not have compassion? This past Tuesday, one of our church planning residents, John Thompson, he was leading our staff prayer time and he said this, and I thought it was so funny. He said it's January, which at the time it was, He said it's January, and January is the month of New Year's resolutions, which basically means this. It's last year's chaos with a little bit more enthusiasm. And by February, the enthusiasm is gone. Listen, when we hear a sermon like this, What we don't, the response that we don't need necessarily is enthusiasm. It's fine if you want to get enthused about this command that God has given his church, but enthusiasm will wane quickly. And so my call, my plea to you and the plea to my own heart is that it just wouldn't be mere human-driven enthusiasm, but that it would be God-driven, a pouring out of his Holy Spirit. We don't need enthusiasm, we need a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. For God to make his people be and become and serve and do and love and mercy the way that he came and was in our midst. The embodiment of mercy. The embodiment of this greater love. That God, that when people look at the church, that they would see the very embodiment of Jesus, not just in word, but in deed. So that's my prayer that it would go well beyond enthusiasm and it would go to God doing what only he can do through the power of his spirit within us. That's what we need. And I'm simply inviting you to pray that prayer with me and to invite your family into that prayer and to ask, what is God calling us? How is God calling us to respond to his call to engage this? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your power, and for your grace. Holy Spirit, would you come? We need you. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us, to use us as only you can. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.